This is The Guardian. Today, Boris Johnson has survived a vote of no confidence. Just. For months now, Boris Johnson has been anticipating that members of his own party would try to get rid of him. It was in December last year, as the first Partygate stories emerged, that Tory MPs, just a few, started to suggest he should resign. They wrote letters of no confidence to the party's backbench committee. Those letters are going in, are they, to the 1922 committee? I would not be a bit surprised if people didn't start to write some of those letters. And as more stories about parties emerged... I believed implicitly that this was a work event. More MPs stated publicly that they couldn't stick by him. So regretfully, I have to say that his position is no longer tenable. Regretfully, he looks like a liability and I think he either goes now or he goes in three years' time at a general election. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. And then this happened. It is being reported that the Prime Minister is among those who has been fined uh, for breaches of COVID regulations. And in late uh, May, when Sue Gray released her report into Partygate, more Tory MPs joined the rebellion. Breaking news that another Conservative MP has uh, broken ranks. Alicia Cairns handed in a letter of no confidence. The former Cabinet Minister Andrea Leadsom has strongly criticised Boris Johnson. Until finally... The threshold of 15% of the Parliamentary Party seeking a vote of confidence in the Prime Minister has been passed. At least Therefore, 54 rebel MPs had written letters um, of no confidence. That's 15% of the Parliamentary Conservative Party, enough to trigger a vote on whether Johnson can stay on as leader of this country. I can report as returning officer uh, that 359 ballots were cast. Last night, those votes were counted and Boris Johnson's fate was decided. That the vote in favour uh, of having confidence in Boris Johnson as leader was 211 votes and the vote against was 148 votes. And therefore, I can announce that the Parliamentary Party does have confidence. Yeah. The majority of his MPs have backed him, for the time being. But how long can he count on their support? From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus. Why the attempt to get rid of Boris Johnson failed. And what happens next? Peter Walker, you're a political correspondent for The Guardian, and I'm speaking to you at 9.30 on Monday evening. You were in the room as the results of this vote came in. Tell us how that was. It was all a bit strange, really, because it was this big committee room. It's one of the kind of very large kind of Victorian panelled committee rooms that overlook the Thames. And basically us journalists had as many as possible pack into the back of the room. And there may be a hundred Conservative MPs who'd come in for the result further up at the front. There were TV cameras and stuff like that. I was like quite near the back, so I couldn't see a, a lot at the start. 
But then when Sir Graham Braden in the 1922 committee walked in, we all stood up and stretched our necks as much as we could. And the actual event probably lasted for no more than a minute. It was just Sir Graham Brady reading out what the results were. But it felt simultaneously tense and in a strange way, which I think is possibly quite bad for Boris Johnson, quite flat, because the result for him was obviously not very good. And afterwards, almost all the Conservative MPs just kind of left quite quickly and quite quietly. There wasn't really much appetite to talk to journalists and try and talk the result up, except the couple of ministers who'd clearly been given the task of like doing that. So, you know, it felt like the air being let out of a balloon very, very slowly. And we know now, of course, that Boris Johnson has won the vote by 211 to 148. So he'll carry on as Prime Minister. But what can we read into that margin of victory? It wasn't good. I mean, there was a lot of expectation management being done by Downing Street over the course of the day. But this would have been at the higher end of what they wanted. The kind of consensus was somewhere between 100 and 130 or 40-ish. And obviously, the more votes against, the worse for Boris Johnson. So it means that slightly over 40% of his MPs don't want him in uh, office. And if you consider the reasonably high proportion of MPs who've got government jobs or parliamentary private secretary roles or things like that, if you take the payroll out of it, then definitely a majority of backbenchers want him out. How do you reckon that result has left Boris Johnson feeling? I mean, he is by nature this kind of boosterish figure who likes to convince other people and presumably himself also that things are better than they might be. So I think it's a a convincing result, a decisive result. And what it it means is that as as a government, we can move on and focus on the stuff that I think really matters to people. And he has, you know, this kind of ability, this kind of slightly tickerish ability to bounce back from stuff, which when things are going wrong can look slightly strange. I mean, judging by the spinning we were getting from loyal ministers immediately afterwards, they plan to portray this as this is the end of it. The parliamentary party voted against this. You know, the line we were getting was, you know, Tory members voted for him in 2019 when he became Tory leader. He then, a few months later, won a general election by miles. And now 60% of Tory party, you know, in terms of MPs, want him to stay. That's it. You know, time to change your record. But rebels are already making a point that they don't see it, that it is over because they genuinely believe that Boris Johnson is the wrong person to lead the country. So Johnson's future is incredibly uncertain. And I think he must know that. Even someone as kind of congenitally bullish as Johnson must realise that things are pretty tough right now. And these votes of confidence don't happen very often. The last time one did was for Theresa May, Boris Johnson's predecessor, How does this result compare to what happened to her? She was obviously able to stay on, wasn't she? But she did have to resign fairly quickly afterwards. Yes, she won. And she actually, in a result that will probably delight May, she did actually slightly better. And um, Theresa May, in a slightly kind of odd detail, turned up in person wearing this kind of elaborate cross between an evening gown and a kind of ball dress. Um, So maybe it's quite fitting that she was dressed up in a celebratory way to help kick a man who I don't think she likes very much out of uh, number 10, even though, you know, obviously it won't happen just yet. Well, I guess we don't know for sure how she voted. I wouldn't bet the mortgage on it, but I'd bet a a reasonably high sum that she voted against him. I don't think she's a particular fan. Who are these Tory rebels then who forced this vote? Well, they're a real mixture. When Theresa May faced a similar thing in 2019, it was 
you know, fairly clear who the people who were opposed to her were. They were the kind of ultra-Brexiters. These were people with, like, you know, WhatsApp groups and membership lists even, and you more or less knew who they were. Whereas this is a complete mix. There's quite a lot of kind of soft liberal one-nation Tories, but there's also a lot of Conservative MPs who just have their own personal reasons for for wanting Johnson out. A lot of it is connected to parties. Some of it is connected to them thinking that he's now a Prime Minister who's going to lose them elections rather than win them. Andrew Bridgen, who we spoke to earlier, was one of the very, very first Conservative MPs for, to, to formally call for Johnson to go. In the Parliamentary Party's genuine concern, not necessarily about voting against Boris Johnson, but the, the, the concern is that they don't know who's going to come next. And people are already asking that question, and once they've already come to asking the question of who next, that sort of presumes that somebody's in the past. That's almost a, psych- a psychological hurdle you have to get over, isn't it? I think that's just the psychological hurdle. I think it's almost that there is a vacancy, or there's going to be a vacancy. And every MP you speak to has got a kind of different reason, but it all coalesces down to similar things. And in the middle of the afternoon, Boris Johnson made a last-ditch attempt to secure the support of his backbenchers, and he made a speech to them. How did that play out? You know, this very much was the kind of speech of his life. And the big pitch was, you know, I'm an election-winning PM. I delivered a majority in 2019. I'm still that same person. And you've got a choice of we either move on from Partygate and, you know, get on with talking about the economy and growth, or we plunge ourselves into these months of fratricidal warfare. And he said if you're doing that, you'd be dancing to the media's tune. And his allies afterwards were trying to sell it as being this kind of very serious side to, uh, to, to the way Johnson is, with few jokes. Immediately after the speech, there were journalists on kind of both sides of this kind of media pen, and MPs were coming out and briefing kind of to different sides of the room, just depending on what door they came out. And he had Jacob Rees-Mogg, the cabinet minister, who's a very, very big Johnson fan, was briefing very supportively for Johnson in one way. Then had Steve uh, Baker, the um, backbench MP, who's also a committed Brexiter, who was briefing against Johnson. The, the reality is that we're, this is a very, very sad day. The Prime Minister's made an incredibly strong case for himself and his record and where he wants to take the country. And my colleagues inside and I, obviously, are all still wrestling with that. But what I would say is, as I've said on the record, and indeed as I said to the Prime Minister face to face, if he broke the law, if he acquiesced in the law being broken, or if he lied about it, I told him he must go. So the Conservative Party is quite split, and that makes it quite difficult for Number 10, because you know they don't quite know who all these people are. Is the group organised in any way? Have they got a leader? No. There's various disparate groups. I mean, one of the leading rebels I talked to was saying, as far as he knew, there wasn't even a WhatsApp group, which is normally the kind of minimum that you need if you're trying to bring a uh, PM down. Has anybody been in contact with you? No. I've been seeing on uh, on social media all this stuff about different briefing documents going round from one camp or the other. Um, no one sent anything to me. As far as there is some organisation, but the whole process has been quite a kind of mixture. After the Sue Gray report came out, it was almost like this sense of things starting to slip. It wasn't a coordinated action. It was just a lot of MPs individually coming to the same kind of point of view, really. It's two weeks since Sue Gray released her report on Partygate. So why has this vote only happened now? Why didn't these rebel Tories move straight away? I guess there's two answers to that, one of which is the fact that it's such a haphazard, disorganised process. And then you had the Jubilee 
celebrations which were taking place. And there was this sense among some Tory MPs that they didn't want to be seen to be having this very, very partisan kind of argument before the Jubilee weekend took place. And Sir Graham Brady did actually say that some um, MPs seemingly sent in no confidence letters, but were kind of post-dated until um, after the Jubilee had taken place. And, and no one really knows if the threshold was reached before or uh, after, but it seemed quite likely that nothing would be done until after that was the case. Even if Boris Johnson wins, which I'm assuming you'll expect. I expect he will win, yes. Yes. By what sort of margin? I don't know, uh, but one is enough. I hope every Conservative one MP... One is enough? I hope every Conservative MP will vote for him. But this is a democracy, and a democracy, if you win by one vote, you have won. So who from Johnson's cabinet came out in support of him when the vote was announced yesterday? Basically, everyone did. You know, some cabinet ministers were being incredibly loyal. Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland secretary, was amongst the ministers who was kind of dispatched to immediately brief journalists outside the 1922 committee meeting. Yeah, no, I'm confident our colleagues will put their trust in him, as the public did. The major- far, far, the big majority of our party put their trust in him as leader of the party. Just a few. You know, obviously, tell us how amazingly Johnson had done and how people were swayed and things like that. So. You know, that's certainly showing, you know, the amount of loyalty that would make you think that he certainly did cast a positive vote. Can you understand why some colleagues have a different point of view? Well, look, we are, one of the benefits of the Conservative Party is we're a very big, wide-open tent. It's one of the strengths of our party, but ultimately tonight gives us a chance to draw a line, move forward in a positive way and get back to delivery. But the whole thing about the way that the leadership vote, the confidence vote takes place, is that it's an entirely secret ballot, so no one knows how you do vote. So it's perfectly possible to be a cabinet minister and send your incredibly supportive tweet or statement or TV clip and then vote a different way. Coming up, how Boris Johnson won the vote, why the rebels failed and what happens next. Peter, this has been humiliating for the Prime Minister. No leader wants to know that they're so unpopular with so many of their own MPs. But he did survive. How did he do that? What has he been doing over the past few weeks to try and shore up support among those MPs who might have been wavering about how to vote? I mean, if you talk to MPs, then a lot of them will say that he's not really been doing as much as he could. I mean, there's two elements to it. One of which is the policy area where you want to kind of enthuse MPs with this great policy programme. And they've talked about big stuff like at his speech to the 1922 committee earlier, he was saying there was giving a vague pledge for lower taxes. But In terms of actual policy ideas, we've been more at the level of bringing back imperial measures and things like that, which which has not enthused a lot of MPs. And and the other part of it is the kind of outreach and whipping operation, the kind of carrot and stick, where you try and work out the people who are kind of wavering and try and bring them over to your side, whether it's through, you know, a threat of, you know, you'll be deselected, you'll never get a job in government, or the promise of, you know, you'll get made a junior minister next reshuffle and there might be a knighthood in 10 years time all that kind of stuff but it's been a bit kind of half soaked almost which which is slightly odd because number 10 must have realized the problems that they faced so what are the rebels going to do now well it's kind of to an extent individually up to them because it's not almost like um the may years when there was this uh, coherent group of brexiter rebels this time it's quite an atomized bunch and a lot of them are from different wings of the party and don't even necessarily talk to each other 
So there's not going to be a strategy, this kind of grand plan. But a few of the rebels, you know, even within a half an hour or hour after the vote, were making it plain they still plan to kind of go on and fight. There is this rule that is now officially safe for 12 months. But if things start to go really, really badly, if the poll ratings tumble even more, if the by-elections don't go well, if it becomes really, really obvious that Johnson has lost the country, then just basically through political pressure and through letting ministers and others know, they can potentially force him out. But even though Theresa May was very, very obviously in big trouble after she won, you know, slightly better than Boris Johnson, her own confidence vote. It took about six months for her to go. So it could take that long for Johnson. I mean, who knows? He's someone who's defied political gravity before. He might lead the party into another general uh, election. No one knows, but it doesn't actually look very good at the moment. Surely a big problem that the rebels have got, though, at the moment is that there's no clear successor to Boris Johnson. Is there a sense that they just forced this vote to happen too early? Should they have waited until another strong candidate had put themselves forward? I think there's two issues with that, one of which is that implies almost there's a strategy and they knew how many letters were going in. And in terms of whether or not there's um, a kind of likely person who would emerge to take over from Johnson, it doesn't seem like there's going to be. Rishi Sunak was the best bet but then things obviously went quite badly wrong with him. So he's no longer seen as a front runner. And I think even if the rebels left it three months or even six months, I don't think there's anyone who's going to emerge on that front. So to an extent, if you force a confidence vote, then you know they had the option of saying to all Tory MPs who might be slightly against Johnson, well, if you vote him out now, then your man or woman might have a chance. You know, it's a gamble that they took and it didn't pay off this time. OK, so Johnson is technically safe. But he's he's got a job to do in terms of persuading a lot of the members of his party back to him. What's his what's his plan? His plan, such as it is, I mean, listening to the uh, TV clip he just did earlier now um, after the vote, is to try and draw a line under it. It's this slightly artificial thing that politicians do, where they say, "Right, that's it. We've all got to move on. It's all been settled." He was, as he said, the 1922 committee trying to portray it as this slightly media-confected notion, as if no one really wants him to go when the polling shows that a lot of people do want him to to go. So his big sell to MPs is, you know, much as it was before the vote, that if you get rid of me, we're going to have this fratricidal war, which will do nobody but Labour any good. And, you know, you've had your chance, you didn't make it, so now you've got to back me, and I'm going to get on with my, you know, policy programme, even though the policy programme is quite vague. There will probably be a reshuffle. I mean, that's what people expect. But the problem with Boris Johnson is that all his allies keep on saying, you know, all he needs is a new team around him, a reshuffle, a relaunch. But this has happened about half a dozen times in the time he's been in office, and it hasn't really fundamentally changed anything, which leads quite a number of MPs to think that the real problem is just Boris Johnson. What's Keir Starmer done to make the most of this opportunity? Well, to an extent... Labour have quite enjoyed just not quite having a day off, but sitting back and letting the opposition tell themselves to uh, pieces. He did um, a quite impassioned um, clip to camera after the vote was in. The British public are fed up, fed up with a prime minister who promises big but never delivers. You know, it's worth pointing out that even in the most kind of generous newspaper stories the next day, Keir Starmer will probably be a couple of paragraphs or one paragraph at the most. This isn't Labour's time and they know it, but to an extent that's you know not a problem for them. They can sit back and 
watch the convulsions take over. They do have to, you know, slowly and carefully build up what looks like an alternative plan. But today is not the day to necessarily go big on it because there's just not the bandwidth for more than one big story. Is this party, the Conservative Party that's been in power for more than a decade, now just in all-out crisis? I mean, there's always an extent to which political history shows us that parties that have been in power a long time kind of decay gradually. Boris Johnson, when he took over, was very, very keen to kind of try and brand himself as something new, as if Theresa May and David Cameron weren't Conservatives. And, you know, he was kind of uh, starting with a new mandate, which to an extent he was, because the general election was very much Brexit-based and his personality was very dominant in that. But you still have a lot of the same MPs and you just have this inertia within parties when they've been in power for a lot of time that that they it just feels they start to run out of ideas and to run out of steam and it does certainly feel a bit kind of end of days peter thank you very much thank you very much that was peter walker thank you again to him this episode was produced by sammy kent and cletia sala and sound designed by axel cacutier The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Casson. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.